0: Welcome to Live with Greg, or Live with Greg, depending on the
1: semantics. I'm here with my friend Tony Vidal, founder of Prankster Entertainment, that has three feature films out in the world.
0: Right. And Um, don't forget Luna the Cat.
1: And Luna the Cat. And off in the distance... (laughs) Um, Hi, right. How are you
0: doing? I am doing great. I'm glad we're finally having this interview. Yeah. We have a lot of history together. We
1: do. I was thinking about that, like, when you did The Prankster mm-hmm. and invited me to do the EPK.
0: Yeah. Should we give a little history here? Sure. 2008, we shot The Prankster, and uh, you were doing the EPK, and then the very famous scene where we were in the... Uh, the Lair of the Pranksters. We had to cut a shot because some guy was hiding in the boxes and tumbled over, and it was you getting a, a behind-the-scenes shot in the scene. So
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do. I, I forgot about that. Thank you for reminding me of that. But Yeah,
0: there's a lot of great behind-the-scenes material for Prankster, which is on YouTube. So 2008, the Prankster, and then not till 2017, we did the... Um, A movie called Baja, which was shot entirely in Baja, California, which was quite an adventure. We should talk about that. And then 2019, uh, another movie here in the Bay Area called Freebird. Yes. So three features are all on Amazon Prime and Tubi and other platforms. All
1: right, so let's talk about your history with film. Mm -hmm. Do you recall... When you first were interested in movies
0: yes I do I was actually I went to UC Davis as an undergraduate and I was very interested in English and English literature and the reason I, w- I became interested because I was at times uh, reading stories novels plays etc that touched my heart and touched my soul and Uh, I came from a background where I felt fairly uh, oppressed for various reasons, and these books and literature uh, with messages of hope and expanding of, of possibilities really inspired me. And I decided I want to do something like that in my life, is to raise consciousness and inspire other people with my creations. And I started with some writing. But it soon became apparent to me and, and to my preference that I wanted to do film because film was the most dynamic and powerful medium of my time and I think our time still. It's not film anymore, it's streamed entertainment, but whatever. The the story film story uh has the power to wake people up and change lives and that's really was really was seductive to me and was also inspirational and I wanted to see if I could do that so then I went to uh, USC film school and got a master's degree in screenwriting because I thought oh you know that must be the way to do this just go to grad school and you know they'll just welcome you with open arms into the film business and while I learned a lot at USC and uh, had no regrets about that experience it was a, a different journey to try and get something uh, uh, made in in the corporate film world. Very difficult.
1: From USC, you ended up at Orion?
0: Yeah, one of my first jobs out of grad school was to be a story analyst, which is basically a script reader. And what we did was uh, write synopses of scripts that were submitted for potential production. And we'd write a short comment. And it's actually a very important job because all the executives uh, at, at the biggest studios even and everywhere else but I actually was very lucky to be hired by United Artists they rely on script coverage from the reader for a lot of decision making I mean they don't have time to read 30, 40 scripts so they can read a, a reader's coverage it's called coverage in in one paragraph get the gist of the story and in two three paragraphs get a commentary which is not Necessarily a, a yay or nay for as far as they're concerned, but it gives them some insight into the, the positives and negatives of, of that script. And to, to be sure, they weren't just selecting projects based on the script. Things came in, and, and obviously, things that came in from powerful actors or producers or directors were given preference and often made, even if a reader you know didn't like the script. But all that said. Uh, a script reader's job was really essential and it gave me the opportunity to read all the best screenwriters in Hollywood for all the major motion pictures that were being made so it was like a PhD in scriptology, if you will, just to be reading hundreds of scripts from the most established writers and to kind of hone my own knowledge and start to begin to hone my craft as a a writer because i that what they really wanted to do was to write and become a um, an established screenwriter, and from there, hopefully, to direct. That's kind of the the youthful fantasy that sometimes is achieved, but not often. Uh, to sell a script and um, sell another one, and then maybe get asked to direct. And there's a lot of things that could go sideways. But anyway, that was my goal at the time.
1: Okay. And how long were you in the Hollywood machine?
0: All of about three years. Three years? Yeah. And I worked for three different studios. United Artists and another studio called Orion Pictures and then another sort of quasi-studio called The Ladd Company that was run by Alan Ladd Jr. who had been running Fox Pictures and did his own thing. But I worked for some of the biggest studio heads at the time, I mean, the guys, their names were Mike Medavoy, Gareth Wigan, Mark Canton, Alan Ladd Jr., and these guys were actually very powerful people who could green light movies, so I thought, hey, I'm in the right place, you know, I mean, I'm like, I see this guy in the hallway and say hi, he knows who I am, you know, one day I'm going to get him a script and, you know, good things will happen, so that was, I felt good about that meow. at the start.
1: <laughs> did you ever add a screenplay to any of the? Oh yeah,
0: yeah. Eventually, I had uh, my screenplay. <laughs> That's Luna, <laughs> or is that Bodhi That's, That's Buddy. Buddy. <laughs> um, I did, I did, and that, they were politely passed on. And after three years of reading hundreds of scripts and sitting in a room. You know, keep in mind, I'd been to college, then to grad school, and now being a reader, you know, I was getting into my late 20s by then, and I realized that I had been sitting in rooms reading and writing almost my entire 20s. And of course, one of the things I was inspired by in the great literature and films was, hey, go out and live your life. And, you know, here I was sitting in a room reading and writing and not really getting to where I wanted to go, and it it felt very confined and constrained. So at a certain point, I just said, okay, if I'm writing one more script, and if by the end of this year, which was 1980, yes, I'm old, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, If that doesn't, you know, give me my big break, the big break, um, then I'm going to go off and uh, take a break and do some traveling and I had actually been in therapy with a really great therapist who encouraged me to break out and he himself had done a lot of traveling use from Brazil originally and uh, had gone on some really long great journeys and he advised me hey you know do this now while you're still young and you don't have other commitments and Um, it'll give you something to write about too because to be honest at age 27 while I had sort of learned how to craft a screenplay I did not have the life experience to really say anything that was deep or meaningful I mean I could craft a genre piece a, a horror or an adventure or something but it was just an exercise it wasn't from the heart so I, I, in my heart, I realized I needed to, to take a risk and go, go traveling. So I quit my job, left my apartment, and went on a six-month trip to Arizona, New Mexico, Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, and Peru. And uh, in uh, Arizona and New Mexico, I was just traveling in a, a little truck with a camper shell and, and camping out on the side of the road. And in Mexico, all I had was a backpack in South America and... So I I hit the road. It was very Jack Kerouac-esque and uh, was one of the great adventures of my life. And I satisfied that itch at the end of six months, which is a long time, running out of money and got sick with with hepatitis (laughs) in Peru. And uh, I found out that uh, my stepmother back in California, Northern California, was come down with cancer. I said, okay, time to come home for a lot of reasons. And so I came back to uh, the Bay Area and I've never left
1: Did you come back to Marin?
0: I did, I came back to Marin in 1981 that's this trip I'm talking about was in 80, end of 80 into 81 and yeah, I've been here since Um, yeah, it's amazing (laughs) where is time gone? (laughs) waits for no one (laughs) Um, so you were close with your stepmother? Yes, you know, you could say that, you know, I mean, yes, yes, I was, you know, a significant person in my life, and she was dying, and I wasn't going to just be too busy to uh, not be there, so I was there, and I helped out, helped in her transition.
1: Was she an encouragement in your life to pursue your dreams? Um, She was, she was
0: a loving person who showed Care and affection to me, even though she didn't come into my life till you know I was a teenager, and uh, I honored that. Um, I think both her and my father were very skeptical of of what I was doing, uh, and I think they had fear about it, and it was something they didn't understand, and maybe it was something uh, uh, I don't know not a lot of encouragement now. Okay. <laughs>
1: Was The Prankster written when you were in LA? The no, first draft? Said, the deal
0: is, um, I took a quite a break from writing and from film in the 80s. And uh, after my stepmother died, my father invited me to work with him. He a, was, was a real estate uh, investor, and he mostly had apartments that he self managed. And to me at the time, there was another. Meta- party involved in uh, helping us work together, and he was a real estate broker named, named Herb. But anyway, um, with Herb's sort of being the buffer between my father and I, I was invited to work for my father, and we transformed his holdings into something much bigger and better over a period of seven or eight years, and the, the carrot for me was, my father was, was always Obsessed with money and I think as a young person I saw I, I resented that and I thought this is stupid and I hate it but on another level I was really wishing gee I wish I had some power and some money and uh, so on some level mostly unconscious it seemed to me okay this and her talked me into this too which was uh, understandable said you know this look you could come here and in a few years uh, be the president of the company and have you know a lot of freedom and, and money that you know, make your own damn movie, you know not just you know depend on someone else. I't know if you said that per se, but you know that's what I was thinking so. yeah
1: right. <laughs> and that's what happened, yeah,
0: exactly okay. so yeah, during the eighties i I worked in real estate, and around 1990 I decided uh, I saw a career counselor who who pointed me back to what was obvious all along that my real passion was writing and filmmaking, and I said, well yeah, sure and still young, and now I have a a lot more life experience to inform my work, so I started writing again in the early 90s, and I started turning out screenplays, and I was very prolific. I wrote a couple books and several screenplays over a period of four or five years, and fortunately my severance from working with my father gave me enough money to just sort of devote myself to writing for several years. I just lived on, you know, the, the settlement. And uh, I considered it... I saw something in the paper where there was the... Remember Ali Akbar Khan School of Music? I read something in the paper where someone was given a a $400,000 grant just to write music. And I said, well, I'd like to do that. And then basically, with the settlement, I said, well, this is my grant to do what I want. I'm granting this to myself. And I'm not going to worry about the future. So... I wrote a bunch of stuff for the next several years and it was very productive and got back into the LA mix and was going down there regularly, got an agent, meetings, you know, a lot of very hopeful talk, but nothing happened.
1: And how many years did that go on?
0: Well that went on really from the um, early 90s into the early 2000s. Um, But around about 1995, I met a guy, Mike Kitchens, an assistant director, uh, who's a a great character and a a wonderful man, who talked to me and said, look, you know, you could try forever to try and get these people to do your movie, and even if they did, you know, they'd rewrite your script, and it might never get released. You know, all kinds of bad things could happen, and he'd seen it, and he said, try and get some funding to make your own movie. And at least you can make your own, make your movie and make it your own way if you do that. So, in around 1996, I came out with an independent film business plan and I started Hunting for Investors in 96. Prankster was made in
1: 2008. Right. I'm thinking. So, that's eight years later.
0: More like 12, yeah.
1: Is it six to? To
0: 2008,
1: yeah no it doesn't okay (laughs) so um, so you're pursuing yeah I was pursuing
0: simultaneously trying to do the independent thing but also still going to LA and meeting with people in 2000 I met with Mike Medavoy the guy I used to work with who now had Phoenix Pictures and you know met in his office it was really cool and personal meeting with him I gave him a a script that I had written and And he made a big show of saying, ah, I'm going to put this in the bag. And he's got this (laughs) leather bag, and he says, very few scripts make it into the bag. And I go, okay, wow. Maybe this is going to happen (laughs) this time. (laughs) But, of course, I got a form leather bag from... He obviously had given it to a reader, and there was some cover I, I being a reader I recognized coverage right away and so right. just quoted the coverage and saying thanks this this stuff is really good but we can not good for us at this time the usual
1: yeah yeah <laughs> oh god were there any close calls with independent funding that
0: well actually yes there were um well with prankster I mean just to cut to the chase um in, in the early two thousands, I went to work as as a mortgage broker for several years because I had you know, had long since run out of the money. I needed to work regular jobs, and uh, that was a, a very good regular job. Uh, and it also taught me about business and taught me humility. And that just because I had this dream and put everything toward it uh, doesn't mean it's going to happen or not in the, in my timeline. You know, maybe in divine time, but. Um, so, um, during that period, I was just mostly working and making a living and, uh, you know, supporting the family. But finally, around 2007, the, my real estate, um, work finally paid off because one of the buildings that I would helped my father buy, he sold and I had a part interest in that building, which didn't really help me until he sold it. Then I got a lot of proceeds, which I said, okay, great, I'm quitting being a mortgage broker, I'm quitting my real job, and uh, now I'm again devoting a, a, a portion of the money I have to pursuing my dream. And by that time, it was 2007, I had been pursuing independent film finances for 12 years. And uh, I did find a, a couple of wonderful people who did put in some money, but the, the vast majority of the money from The Prankster came from my own proceeds. So. Yeah. and I decided to go for it so 2007 the the deal closed on the building and I found those two other uh, investors and by September of 2008 we were shooting the prankster and I was on my way on that path of independent film once you make an independent film not only do you learn about making a film but you also learn about the business side okay what do I do with it afterwards what's Possible in distribution and all that's against a changing landscape because things are dramatically changing every year or two, and still are. Right?
1: Yeah. So, do you have any peak experience memories from the prankster as a production?
0: I remember being totally stressed out. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's funny that's a peak experience of my of ah. Baja it was like the end of my room <laughs> do you were you totally stressed out
0: no I mean you? look that's that was just um, an aspect of it and most of the time I wasn't feeling the stress because I was too focused on what needed to be done to make the movie so focused on this scene that scene the you know the next day and so forth so um keeping busy and staying on task was really um, actually enjoyable and um, so, yeah, I I think that it was really two-sided, it was really a thrill and really enjoyable and uh, amazing to see the words come to life I should mention that prior to The Prankster in um, 2002 I was hired to write a screenplay for uh, an independent producer, Norm Hunter, and it was called Her Best Move, a movie about girls' soccer, and Norm's a great guy, and I learned a lot about independent production just by watching him do that film. So I should say I had a, a bit of a head start in looking at the whole process. And That script was written in 2002. He made the movie in 2005. It got released in 2007, which is when I got the money to do Prankster... In 2008. So, I um, learned a lot from watching his movie and applied that to mine, and learned a lot more from doing mine.
1: One thing that comes to mind with the three films is with The Prankster, in regards to distribution, it seems like you really just released it into someone else's hands. And by the third film, Freebird, it's really still in your hands as far as distribution. You've hired some people to distribute but you didn't let it go completely
0: yeah I back then and we're talking about the film was done in 2009 it was ready for distribution and I got it with someone called a producer's rep who's like an intermediary who knows all the distributors and markets directly to them and it's kind of like an agent for a finished film right so he put it out there and much to my disappointment there was not much interest until a company called Strand Releasing, which is a very reputable small distributor, picked it up. Now, what I learned is that the vast majority of the small distributors for independent film don't make much money for the people who made the film. I mean, it's really, those distributors are kind of just um, fielding a bunch of independent films and making a little money from each of them and that's how they make their living. So they bring in, you know, he was pulling in uh, at least a dozen to, to 20 films a month to then turn around and go to Netflix or go to Hulu or go to um, cable channels or whatever. And interestingly enough, Ned, um, he sold, strand releasing, a guy named John Jaron's. Sold it to Stars and Showtime, mm-hmm. and uh, you say, Wow, that's great! And it was great. We had over 200 airings over a two year period about 100 airings on Showtime and 100 airings on uh, Stars. And keep in mind, Showtime has multiple channels, so we were on their fourth or fifth channel, whatever. But, um, got a lot of viewership for the movie, and we were paid very little because independent films are are beggars. Beggars can't be choosers and you take what this offered or you know, they, they move on. So it wasn't financially lucrative, but it was gratifying to know that hey, Showtime and stars are interested in this movie and they put it out there and it did well enough to I mean how many shows play a hundred times you know, right. over two years. That's and did they
1: even renew, like they had a year and then they renewed? No, it was for a two-year license. was two-year. And also, in 2009, Theatrical was still prominent as a distribution outlet. Right. Was that ever talked about with Strand?
0: For sure. I and mean, that was the goal, for sure, for every independent film was to get on the big screen and very few actually ever make it. So the kind of distribution we got was what most independent films get if they're lucky was just uh, piecemeal here and there to to um, various platforms and but, you know looking back on it I have to say really thrilled with the exposure for the film and the business side the financial part was just something I was learning about and it was not something that you could really expect a big reward. You know, look, I think making an independent film and wanting or hoping to make money out of it is like trying to win the lottery. There's thousands and thousands of independent films, and the, the ones that are kind of hit the jackpot, so to speak, are like the ones that get into Sundance, which is a miracle in itself, and then are maybe acquired at Sundance or Toronto or some major festival. So, you know, there's like... A dozen films out of thousands and thousands that hit that jackpot. So, it started me on a track of really changing my perspective on why I was doing this, and to be to be fair and honest, and I was doing it for the love of film and to tell a story that I hope would touch people's hearts and raise awareness levels. So, to to the extent that we got it out on Showtime and Stars and it aired hundreds of times that was a a complete success complete success Um, if you're just looking at at it on the financial level and in our society in our world in that film business financial is, is kind of like the assumed reason for everything it's like oh yeah you know you're in this to make money it's like well I've had to adjust my viewpoint it's like I was in it to tell a story and reach people, and hopefully make money. And I've now come to the conclusion that um, the story is everything, and reaching people and having an impact far transcends the idea of making money. I mean, uh, and so I'm lucky that I was fortunate enough to finance my own movie, because, you know, most people can't do that, and they have to... Be beholden to the idea of well, these people want you know they're going to finance a film, but they want to make money with it. So I have to pretzel my self and my vision to to fit what they think will make money, and it becomes a real mess. And what what you have is you know most movies.
1: So do you feel like all three films represent that your true heart of the story that you were. To put up Absolutely.
0: More. I've been blessed in being able to, to do three movies completely the way I wanted to do them for my sensibility at the time. And I will say that my sensibility was influenced by my training in film school and in the studios. And I had a certain sort of uh, vision or even um, belief that, oh, film stories should look and feel You know, like this. And it wasn't about money, but it was about the three-act structure, the beginning, middle, and end. And I had seen a lot of films and knew a lot of film history. So my films were kind of infused by the conventional storytelling pattern of past films. And uh, that was fine. And I think they're good examples of that style of filmmaking. Now, at this point in life, I feel like I'm ready to break out of that mold. And try to do something, or not try, but actually do something that is not beholden to the traditions. I mean, look, um, there was a, a screenwriting screenwriter named Jeremy Levin who said uh, about structure. Listen, screenplays are well known for being highly structured and structure is important. But he said, uh, learn structure uh, and use it uh, and then be free or something like that Uh, in other words you know sort of the starting point of how things are done but then break break the rules as you see fit and uh, and just knowing the rules will help you not go too far afield where you're counterproductive but anyway so I'm I'm ready now to really do something far more straightforward in the notion of transformative storytelling and raising consciousness and just really putting it out there in a way that blows people's minds. Instead of being, oh this is a really good teen comedy or this is a good road picture or whatever this is a good buddy movie that has some dimensions of you know spirituality or or something more interesting or deeper now let's just do the whole thing as a deep exploration of something.
1: Well I have two questions the first is does that mean that you are considering a fourth film? Honestly, <laughs> a, an honest consideration. Of Absolutely. That. That's impressive. I have no idea what it, it will be. Okay, so there's no story that you think. No, oh, no, cool. no, no. I
0: have I have a collaborator, and. Um, a collaborator in the writing
1: process. Yes. All right. Yes. All right. And. Um, <laughs>
0: Yes, I have a collaborator. (laughs) And we'll leave it at that.
1: Okay, so uh, behind the scenes, we got to no, let's keep that one secret. Okay, (laughs) that's good. Um, When you're talking about breaking that stereotypical beginning, middle, end, that I love, it brings to mind, I forget, Ken's his first name, I forget his last name, he did Tommy, is the famous one. That oh, I, yeah. Um,
0: yes. <laughs>
1: and, you know, he kind of got into this sort of. I've seen artists who, in the attempt to break rules, they get into this very flamboyant chaos. Mm-hmm. So, I guess what I'm wondering is. Ken Russell. You know, Ken Russell, that's the man. Yes, thank you. Um, do you feel that that there's potential for that for you as a filmmaker, or yeah, let's just leave it at that? Do you feel like you might get into a chaotic place and well, I
0: mean, chaos is chaotic is a, a function of your viewpoint, you know, to some people it may seem uh, brilliant and coherent. To other people, it may seem incomprehensible and chaotic. So, yes, yeah, going to going to uh, undiscovered lands. All
1: right, <laughs> all right. From a cinematic, fr- all right. Um, boy, I just. Uh, Well, I, for one, am very grateful that you invited me into your world of filmmaking because I have experiences that I dreamed of and you and I have spoken of it many times.
0: Shouldn't we tell your listeners what your role was?
1: For which one? (laughs) For uh, The Prankster, my role was to... Test your patience. And <laughs> and see.
0: No, no, actually, the, the EPK on that is, is really outstanding. Well, thank you. And um, I, once again, just in case our listeners didn't get it the first time, there's tons of, uh, of YouTube behind-the-scenes videos that Greg did on our Prankster Entertainment YouTube channel. Yeah. Check them out.
1: Yeah. That was... Uh, here's one thought I had, because the Prankster from my perspective was a very Hollywood production in the sense that you had an assistant director and all these people, you know, and the way it progressed had a Hollywood production structure.
0: Well, the reason for that is I didn't know any better. And uh, it was my first film, and I'd seen what Norm did on Her Best Move. And he had pretty much... Um, he, look... Back then, if you're a new filmmaker, and especially a new producer, you ask the people who've been making films, uh, how do you make a film? And they say, oh, you need this guy and this guy and this guy, and this is how you do it. And so your first film, you kind of just let let those kind of people take you on that path. Uh, And then you refine from there and go, wow, That was okay in some ways or good, but I think it could be a lot more efficient or a lot less people or, you know, whatever. So then you refine your your style and your team. And you saw that in the progression of my films from Prankster to Baja, which we should talk about. And finally, the Freebird, which was an extremely low budget, extremely small crew, and uh, really was kind of the most fun because it was so, we were so light on our feet.
1: All right, let's talk about Baja. So uh, for Below the Line, hired...
0: Yeah, that was really interesting because they wrote this story that was set com- almost completely in Mexico. And then, as you know, you were um, producing that with me. We were looking, how do we shoot this? Where do we shoot this? And we interviewed a bunch of indie producers in L.A. And they said, oh, yeah, we could shoot this You know, over in... Uh, You know, Riverside or something. (laughs) And I go, well, that's not really, uh, you know, I. That doesn't sound very good to me, and it's not. It's not going to be authentic, obviously. Anyway, we. I eventually met at AFM, uh, a guy who was representing prankster for foreign sales named Mark Klevenoff, and he said, I know this guy who operates out of Baja you should talk to him and he was at AFM his name was Fraser Roger Ellis Roger Fraser not Roger
1: Fraser. (laughs) he's called Fraser yes
0: Fraser who um,
1: Bad House Films
0: Bad House Films and he'd been already operating in uh, Rosarito just below Tijuana making independent films making several of them so he had an ongoing established team of people and knew how to make movies in Mexico um, and so I got introduced to him we started talking he came in with a budget that seemed pretty reasonable and the thing about producing with him was he basically offloaded everything to him in terms of physical production so it's like you and I just showed up and he had all the departments and Taken care of and got the locations and uh, had the permit for shooting. I should mention that he was very proud to tell me that to shoot in Baja, Mexico, you'd need to go to one office and fill out a form, and they give you a permit to shoot anywhere and everywhere in all of Baja. So <laughs> the permitting process yeah. was pretty straightforward. Nice. <laughs>
1: Very different from the United States.
0: (laughs) Not only that, then when you get locations, basically you can just, you know, hail someone on the street or walk into their shop and say, Hey, can we shoot here? and they say, Okay. And you shoot
1: Yeah, let's talk about that. So you drove a motorcycle into a shoe stop. You had a casino where they let you use their chips. I I was shocked at that. I was like, What? You're letting us use your chips?
0: Well, that's the thing about Mexico, and that's why I love it so much. It's like, it's so much looser than what what we're used to doing things. It might have been like the U.S. back, I don't mean they're back in time, but just how loose things were maybe in the 50s. Back down there, it's like, and also we were like a big fish in a small pond, so to speak. There's not a lot of films coming through, so say, hey, we're making a film, and they're like honored and flattered and interested Fascinated to see, you know, what we're going to do. So they let us use it for free or for very cheap, and really, usually, they you know, usually got paid, and it was by American standards almost nothing. So Fraser, and this was the thing too. That was a very shoot from the hip production. He would go line up the location like the day before, which for a director. Namely, me. That was kind of harrowing to say. Do we have the location yet? Can I see it? You know, we're, we're shooting here tomorrow morning, right, right. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yeah, I got it. And I walked over to the shoe store in the afternoon and figured out how we were going to do it. But it was uh, it was really empowering to, in a, in a in a a way that I didn't really welcome at first, <laughs> was to to just be able to shoot from the hip and shoot things and scramble to get locations and scramble to line up all the shots and so we didn't have the the benefit of a complete storyboard and months of pre-production and figuring out every last thing we just had kind of and there's a lot of risk in that but also there's a lot of um, excitement and creativity and in the moment you go okay well here's the time we got here's the location. Let's do this, this, and this. Let's go. Yeah, you do it.
1: Um, boy, there are stories about Baja. <laughs> um, one thing I really admired with Roger and his crew is it was an army of a crew mm-hmm. that they were on point. You know, like mm-hmm. just. Moving like an army, and that military precise—like we're here, and this is happening, and here we go.
0: The crew was great, and the the operation of the crew was great. No, no complaints about that. I was very, very appreciative. of that. Yeah,
1: and what they were willing to do for yeah, get a production. I will we'll say that
0: we, as as the gringo producers who came in, we were very respectful and and wanting to. Um, make sure that everyone was treated properly and was having as good a time as possible so I think they appreciated that because I think they've had other producers or directors come in and, and not be so pleasant to work with
1: that's yeah unfortunate and mm-hmm. any of the three films during production did you have a moment where you thought it's over what, I, I, we aren't, I can't do this <laughs>
0: Well, I'll give you two stories on that. One is the very last shoot day on Baja, we were supposed to be at the airport. <laughs> you know about the airport. <laughs> the airport, um, everyone knew that was the location from the beginning, and up until the day before, even the day of, Fraser wasn't sure we could get the airport. And so, can you write the scene somewhere else? Can it be like you know, out of out in the harbor or something. No, you know, the whole thing is set up that his parents arrive on the airport and they meet and stuff, and that had been, you know, from day one. Anyway, so the airport had not been secured and then Roger says, Okay, we got the airport, we're going there in the afternoon and uh, when we get there, he says, Yeah, see if you can get get it done in an hour and then there's like three or four guys hanging out looking at us you know, with their arms crossed who were associated with the airport I'm not sure what the hell the deal was uh, but there was a lot of tension and I'm thinking I've got three pages of stuff I was expecting to have all afternoon and into the evening to do this and just try and get it done in an hour it's like holy shit yeah. so we just ran as hard as we could got moved as quickly as we can You know, eyes on us, stink eye, (laughs) stink eye. But uh, finally, when we got about close to getting the last two setups and they hadn't kicked us out yet, I was going, Oh God, we're going to make it. But I was, I don't know that I was ready to call it quits. I was just, Petrified that the very good. last minute we were going to get an essential part of the movie.
1: Yeah, the climax. <laughs> yeah. That sense, yeah.
0: So that was uh, amazingly intense. And then on Freebird, there was a, a scene one day we were shooting across from the Belrose Theater, and, and uh, there was a lot of activity and a lot of people that were being managed. And I was across the street with the uh, cameraman, we were getting a shot of, of the theater. And waiting and just going oh my god I, I, it wasn't that I don't know if I can do this it's like I don't know if I want to do this anymore it's like so much hassle with you know all the different parts and pieces and waiting and my back was hurting or something I don't know so um, that's, that was a point in time where I said hmm I think I need in my next movie I need to offload and delegate a lot more and get a lot more support you know, and not just be, um, be the one man band and it kind of been oh,
1: right is that plausible for uh, film number of oh, course of course it is yeah All right.
0: <laughs> All right. Um. Whew. yeah it brings back uh, trauma right yes. a, a trauma response to
1: <laughs> I will never forget arriving in Loretto in my mind I had fucked up and lost our mom the actress oh, right. yeah I' had to blame on that. I was, you know from in my mind, I was <laughs> to blame for that. We had lost the yacht mm. i didn 't know where I was spending the night. My phone wasn 't working, yeah. and I remember sitting at that cafe that we all loved the uh, heart, something yeah. you know right. and on the stairs, and they were close. I was like, I don 't know how I could do this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's just too hard. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, just, I was like that my wit's But then there's no flights leaving Moretto So I was like, oh, well, that's <laughs> not an option. So now what? We pulled it together. What would you say to an aspiring filmmaker who has not done a film to keep in mind for the best potential success? And, well, here's a question for you. What do you believe is wise to keep in mind for a successful film About success? What would you define success?
0: Well, I think that really starts with the story you're telling, for sure. I mean, a successful film is um, made from a script or a story that has heart and meaning and uh, touches people or opens opens hearts opens minds so first and foremost script Get really work the script you know a really good script that's executed even moderately competently will make a good movie a bad script that's executed at a hundred million dollar Hollywood level will still be a bad movie so that's essential
1: the story
0: you know, work that script till it's you, you love it and people love it
1: alright what about from a business perspective? What would you recommend? A,
0: a you know, I don't know how to succeed in the film business on a money level. I just know I've had the, been blessed to be able to make movies and, and not be as concerned about the money part, which, you know, I, I grant. Not many people have that. But um, I would say to always make the movie that you want to make. And um, be as practical and as efficient as possible. If you, if budget is an issue, figure out how to do it on as low a budget as possible, while still treating people fairly and respectfully. I mean, you see a lot of independent films where people get other people to work for nothing, and then it becomes like a, a hellish. Journey, <laughs> nobody's getting paid, and they're not getting fed, and they're working 16 hours. No, N- no, don't yeah. do that. Yeah. You know, have have a humane and enjoyable plan for how to ex- have the experience be for everyone, and everyone should have um, an experience. I'm proud to say that on on my films, I think on each one, I've had people come away saying. Wow, that's the best experience I've had working on at film.
1: Yeah. If you don't mind my sharing, one of the things I've appreciated working with you is I think you drive hard. Like, there were times in Bali, I remember one day, where it was everyone's days off, day off, and you called a meeting. I was like, oh, I don't think you can do that. <laughs> and I also thought, you know, what we're attempting is extremely difficult. I'd rather be in alliance with someone who's pushing hard than sitting back. Because sitting back probably won't make it, and pushing hard probably will. And also, thinking of the prankster, because I can remember multiple phone calls where you're like, Greg, you said you were going to have it done last week, <laughs> and it's not done. I was like, ah. <laughs> Your patience under fire is admirable. And, uh, your ability to keep a res- keep respect for an individual that is pushing patience, and mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't just me. I've seen it in production. We're some, you know we're human beings, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's been something I really deeply appreciated. Well, thank
0: you. And it, it is hard to know that balance, you know. And I don't want to be um, overzealous or a maniac. And uh, I don't think I am. Uh, I do think that I could, in future, do things in a more relaxed way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. It might be just a stressful filmmaking. It might just be well, a stressful I know no, that's a
0: self-fulfilling prophecy. I do think okay. that you can walk into it with, um, with a different belief and have that be the experience. But it... it Certainly means that there will be times where somebody or something is off course, and yet you have to be firm and prompt in correcting that yeah, and that's not necessarily being a hard ass that's just fulfilling the vision and being a good captain you know i mean if you're the cat you know the, the the metaphor for a director is the they're the captain of the ship or they're helming that's the variety you say. This person is helming that movie. Um, you know, if someone is uh, not doing their job, and uh, and you need them to do their job for the ship to get to shore, then you need to tell them or replace them. You know, yeah. get them working or replace them. And that's there's no nothing personal about that. It's just the overall way things work.
1: Yep, I agree. Mm. Well, is there anything that we've left out that you'd like to bring up? No, this has been great.
0: I've uh, learned a lot just remembering some of this stuff. So thank you for the opportunity to to recapitulate. And, um, yeah, one thing I would add is that at this point in time now that it's been uh, over a year since the third film came out and I have not been actively doing anything film-wise. I've been busy with other interests. But... Um, I will say looking back on it now I'm really feel thankful and blessed to have been able to make the films I'm proud of the films uh, as they are even though our IMDB ratings are kind of embarrassing but uh, some of our other ratings on Amazon and so forth are quite good so the point there is like don't be dependent on outside approval for you feeling Good about what you do, you know. You if you feel good about it, then that's all that matters. So, what I'm trying to say is, now looking back on it, I feel good about the films. I feel blessed to have made them. I do think they've reached people um, way more than I even realized, and um, I have no regrets and no. um, What do they call that? Um, I'm not apologizing for for anything like, oh, I wish they would made more money, that's the thing. Well, I do, but they didn't, and it's still okay, and they're more than okay. They're good films, and they're successful, and they're out there, and and, um, let's carry on.